0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Personally, I think college football is way overrated. (laughs) Except for the Crusaders, right guys? There we go over there. Yeah, Beat the number six or four team in the nation, just throttled them. Uh, My team did not play yesterday. They, uh, They were on a field, but that was about it, so... Lehman, let's pray, Father, thank you for your word, and uh, we have worshiped you in song, and now we pray that you would teach us and let us be doers of the word, not merely hearers, as we tackle a difficult subject, subject of forgiveness in Christ's name. Amen. You ever see something and scratch your head and think, really? I mean, I'm really seeing that, that really happened. Uh, if you Google up, don't do it now, but if you Google up redneck inventions, you'll scratch your head and you'll go, really? And so these are some of the things you'll see if you Google up redneck inventions. That's a great idea right there, I'm telling you. Okay? Hey, here's a great idea right here, too. I mean, you just get a picnic table, put some stuff under it, and away you go. And uh, here's a better invention right there. Look at that. You get a teething ring and a baby chair all in one, Right? I mean, sometimes you scratch your head and you go, really? I mean, really? And when you come to the book of Philemon, you scratch your head and you go, really? Philemon was awakened by a commotion. It was a commotion outside his window. He wasn't sure exactly what was happening. But as he pushed open the shades, he finally got a glimpse of what was taking place. You see, there were a group of people gathered around. They all worked for him. Some of them were slaves that he owned. And As they gathered around, what Philemon overheard was that Onesimus was missing. Onesimus, one of his slaves, had run away. Onesimus, one of his slaves that he'd known since he was a little boy, was now gone. Nobody knew of his plan. Nobody knew where he went, and nobody knew where to find him. They, they were all afraid because they knew if Onesimus was found and brought out, he, he, would, he would suffer the consequences of runaway slave. Under Roman law, runaway slave had, anything could be done to him. Uh, Philemon, the master, knew that uh, other masters had crucified slaves that had run away. They had drowned slaves that had run away. They had flogged and to death slaves that had run away. At a minimum, he would have the big F branded into his forehead, which stood for the Latin word fugitivus, so that he would be reminded every day of his life that he had been a runaway so that everybody around him knew this is what would happen if you ran. So Nissimus was missing. He was gone. Nobody had any idea where he was gone. And Philemon began to search as he had to as a master, but he couldn't find him either. And the days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months. We're not told how long it is. And a day came when Philemon would scratch his head again and go, Really? Really? Scriptures don't tell us where they were. Imagine with me for a second that Philemon is out in the field with his other workers, and he sees two figures coming down a pathway towards his home, towards his field, and it's easy for him to make out who they were. He had known them for a long time. One was Tychicus. Tychicus was a a fellow believer in Christ. He was a fellow disciple of Christ. He he was one who was part of the church at Colossae, the church that met in the home of Philemon. He knew that was Tychicus, and as he looked more closely, he recognized the gate of the other man. He had known him since birth. It was his runaway slave. It was Onesimus. And he began to scratch his head, and he said, Onesimus is not in change, and why is he with Tychicus? How, How did they find one another? Why is he coming back, and why is he not coming, kicking, and screaming, and why is he not dragging him along in bondage, and why is it that he's here? And as Philemon began to look, they came closer and closer and closer, and his mind was flooded with a thousand questions. What would he do to Onesimus, his runaway slave? How would he treat him? What would he do with him? He had been one one of his closest confidants when it came to those who worked for him. How would Philemon treat him, and what would he do? He knew what had to be done, and his mind was flooded with a thousand questions. As Philemon was standing there, closer to him came Tychicus, and also Onesimus. And Onesimus falls at the feet of his master. And before he can say a word, Tychicus, his friend, says, I've got a letter. It's from Paul. It's a letter from Paul. And before you decide what to do with Onesimus, the one who's at your feet, the one who has run away, the one that we both know well, please read Paul's letter. Imagine as he read that letter, he scratched his head and went, really? Really? Paul, you, you expect me to do that? You see, Philemon knew Paul. The church at Colossae met in his house and he knew who Paul was and perhaps he had been led to Christ by Paul himself, as I'll show you in a few seconds. And Tychicus handed over to Philemon a letter that would give him some instructions. If you were Philemon, what would you do? We're going to unwrap this letter in a second and read it. Because in your hands right now, that app that you have on your phone, that Bible you hold in your hand is the very letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. In your hand right now, you hold the very letter that Philemon would receive from the Apostle Paul. And I want you to thank for a minute of what it had to be like. Imagine you are Philemon. Imagine you now have to deal with the request of the apostle. You're living in the first century. You're a slave owner. Doesn't make it right, but you're a slave owner. And now the apostle is going to make a request. You're going to scratch your head and go, really? And as we look at this, we see the unfolding of a real-life drama. This is not some made-for-TV movie. This is not a Hallmark or a Lifetime original, if you will. But, but this is real-life drama. It's the drama between a slave owner, a runaway slave, a good friend who's a godly man, and a letter from the Apostle Paul. And that's what you hold in your hands. And so as we look at this letter, we're going to see it begins with the praise of Philemon. Philemon. If you look at the very first verse, Paul identifies himself as the author, and he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Paul is in prison in Rome, and Timothy, we know who Timothy is, he's a young pastor, he's a protege of Paul, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, he says, Philemon, we know you're a brother, we know you're a fellow worker, we know you're a servant, and to Aphia, our sister, who must be Philemon's or maybe Philemon's wife, Agrippus, our fellow soldier, to the church that meets, circle the next word, in your house. Philemon, we know the church meets in your house and so we would assume Philemon is a godly man the way that Paul appeals to him. And Philemon may have been a wealthy man that the church was able to meet in his house. We're not sure, but we know that's where the church meets, the church in Colossae. And Paul praises Philemon and he says, I thank my God, verse 4, always making mention your prayer in my prayers because I hear of your love and I hear of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. And he's saying, Philemon, I know you're a good man. You're a godly man. You love Jesus and you love people and he's praising Philemon for the man that he is. And if you look at, at verse 7, he says, Philemon, you refresh many people. People come to you, and they, they, they are refreshed by you. I've come to have much joy, much comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been fresh, refreshed through you, my brother. And so as Paul writes to him, he, he says, we, we, we love you. We care for you. We, we know that you are a fellow servant of Jesus Christ, and we're grateful for the many that you've refreshed. And Paul's praise is promised by a plea and Paul is going to ask Philemon to do something that Paul's going to scratch his head and go, really, really? In the plea of Paul is found in verses 8 through 17. In those verses, uh, Paul says, therefore, because of who you are, therefore, because you've refreshed many, therefore, because you are a follower of Christ, therefore, uh, because you are one who loves the saints, therefore, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do this. He said, I could pull my apostolic card and say you have to do this and command you to do it, but I'm appealing to you rather in love, brother. By the way, that's a great example of how we are to lead others. We are to love others. We're to love the truth in others, not beat the truth into others. And Paul says, I, I, For love's sake, I, I appeal to you. And I imagine that you're Philemon, and for, for that moment, you're reading this letter for the first time. You've got to be imagining what is Paul appealing to me for? Why is Tychicus here and why is Onesimus here and why is he handing me this letter from Paul and what's this about? And I imagine his, his eyes fell down a little bit on the letter and he saw the name Onesimus. So that's what this is about. So that's what this letter's about. And as we read it, he says, I appeal to you. Look at this in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child whom I've begotten in my imprisonment. What? My child? Begotten in imprisonment, those are words of new birth. Those are words of new life. And in Paul's handwriting, he's saying, hey, I want you to know Onesimus has been born again. Onesimus has been regenerated. Onesimus has been begotten. I'm in prison. He found his way to me in prison. We don't know how. We don't know if maybe he was arrested as a runaway, cast into prison in Rome and met Paul there. Or if he looked up Paul or if he found Tychicus, who you may have known from their relationship with Christ. We don't know how it happened. But what we know, he's a different man. He's a changed man. He has found the truth of the gospel. He's met Jesus. And so Paul appeals to Philemon, the master. And he says, hey, I want you to know, onisipus is now one of us. onisipus has changed. Onesimus is is now, uh, he's now my child. I've begotten him. If you have the NIV, it says he became my son in prison. So somehow he found Paul and Rome in prison details are not given to us, but, but now he's a new creature in Christ and he's a different man. He's a changed man. And we don't know what Philemon's thinking. Philemon may be thinking, well, that's the oldest game in town, a jailhouse conversion. I mean, really nice, Onesimus. That, that way you don't get your just due. Therefore, now you've got the apostle interceding for you. We don't know what Philemon thought. The scriptures don't tell us. What we do know is that Paul says he's a changed man. He's a different man. And not only that, in verse 11, he says he was formerly useless to us. And I imagine Philemon clucked his tongue and said, you bet he was. He was useless. He ran away. I had to hire somebody to take his place. He was useless. I had a harvest to get in or, or, or crop to plant. We don't know the timing of all this. But Paul says he was useless, but not anymore. Now he's useful. Look at the rest of the verse. He says he's useful to you and to me. He's useful to both of us. He's a changed man. Philemon, I want you to know that Onesimus, your former slave, the one who's run away, he's a totally different guy. He is now useful. And if you're Philemon, you'll be scratching your head and saying, what? Really? Imagine Philemon's head is spinning at this point in time. Because Paul now says this, I've underlined in my Bible, I've sent him back to you in person. And maybe it hits Philemon now. No chains, no ropes, no bondage. He's coming on his own accord. He's not being dragged here. He walked alongside Tychicus. And he, he came on his own accord. Paul sent him back. He knew the consequences of being a runaway slave. He, he knew what awaited him when he came back, but he willingly came back. Paul sent him, and he's coming back. And he said, I sent, sent him back to you in person like I'm sending my own heart. Paul trusts him. Paul loves him. In fact, he goes on and he says, I I wish to keep him with me on your behalf that he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. He's saying, I want you to know that Onesimus, he's come along and he's ministered to me. You can't be here, but he is. You can't be here, but he is. And then he says, but without your consent, I didn't want to do anything that your goodness should not be as it were by compulsion, but of your own free will. He says, I knew the right thing to do was to send him back to you. By the way, Paul is no obedient to the scriptures. He knew it wasn't right for him to keep him. He had to send him back and resolve things. There needed to be a resolution here. He wasn't going to lord it over Philemon. He's sending him back to deal with the issue. He didn't sweep it under the rug and send him a letter and say, by the way, I've got Onesimus. But he sent Onesimus back to be reconciled to Philemon. And then he says, perhaps for this reason, he parted from you to that that, that you should have him back forever. And here comes the clincher. Not as a slave, but more than a slave. Paul, he ran away from me. What do you mean more than a slave? What do you mean take him back? What do you mean give him honor? More than a slave, but as a brother, especially to me, but how much more to both, both in the flesh and the Lord, to you, if then you regard me as a partner, except Onesimus, As though he were me. Really? Take back my runaway slave. What are the other masters in our community going to say? What are all the other slave owners going to say? What are my fellow slaves going to do? They're going to run away and be be welcomed back as a brother and be given a position of honor. And and when they come back, I'm... Philemon, he ran away. It's wrong. But he's now your brother. He's received a new life. And I want you to welcome back with honor and treat him as more than a brother, but treat him like you're treating me. Treat him like you're treating me. We've had the privilege to go many places around the world as you've sent us to do conferences and stuff, and it's very humbling the way we're treated. You go as the keynote speaker, as the guest speaker, the guest preacher, and they treat you. People with nothing give you a lot. They feed you meals that... It's like Thanksgiving and Christmas rolled in one in our day and age, and it's very humbling. And Paul was saying, uh, when Onesimus comes back, you treat him that way. You treat him like me, the apostle, has shown up on your doorstep. (laughs) Really, Paul? Really. And the pledge of Paul is this. If he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. Here's my American Express, Philemon. Use it just take it out and use it. If he owes you anything at all, if you, if you paid for a posse to go get him, if, if you paid for other workers in the field, if, if it cost you anything at all, I'm not making it up. Look at what it says in the next verse, verse 18. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. By the way, that's what Jesus did for us. That's what Jesus did for us. If he's wronged you in any way, we have wronged God. If he owes you anything, we owe him a lot. Charged it to my account. We couldn't pay for it, but he did. He redeemed us. He paid the price for our sin. That, that, that's one of the great pictures in this little bitty epistle. By the way, he says, uh, I'm writing this in my own handwriting, Philemon. I, I'll repay it. I guarantee you. Here's my note of credit. I, I want you to know I'm as good as my word, lest I should mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. That little parenthesis right there, perhaps Paul led Philemon to faith in Christ as well. You owe me your very life. Yes, brother, let me benefit from the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know you will do even more than I ask. You're going to do more than I ask you to do, Philemon. I know it because of who you are in Christ. And so the pledge of Paul is that I'll pay any debt that's there. And then the personal matters, look at the next verse. He says, hey, by the way, get my bed ready because I'm coming to visit. He says, prepare place a place of lodging. He says, get the guest room, Letty. I'm, I'm going to come and see you, and uh, I'm going to meet Onesimus, and I, I, I've got full confidence you're going to treat him just as, a, as you ask. You read that, and you are Philemon. What are you going to do? I mean, you're reading this for the first time. You've got it in your hands. You hold that letter in your hands right now. You, you are the master. He's your runaway slave. He, he's a new creature in Christ. And, and now the great apostle says, hey, I want you to take him back. In fact, I, I don't want you to, to exact justice. Him. I want you to treat him like, a, like, like it was me. So what happened? How many of you like to know what happened? Let me see your hands. How many of you want to know how Philemon treated Onesimus? Let me see your hands. Most of you, not all of you. Yeah, all of you now, okay. I'd like to know that too. You know what happened? We don't know. We have no idea what happened next. It's not anywhere. Church history doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know what happened. So you can close your Bibles, turn off your phones, and we'll go home. At 1145, you know that's not going to happen. I'd like to know what happened, wouldn't you? I'd like to know if Onesimus walked him into his home. I don't know if he, if he gave him a place of honor. I'd, I'd like to know if he, he said, Paul, you're crazy. I can't do that. We don't know. So we have to ask a question why? If the Holy Spirit has given us the inspired Word of God, the living Word of God, why didn't He tell us the rest of the story? If this was Hollywood, there'd be 16 sequels after this. What happened to Onesimus? What happened to his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids? You know, I mean, but we don't know. Yeah, I've read a bunch of commentaries and have prayed and thought about this a long time. I've studied this book many times. I've only taught it one other time 14 years ago. My conclusion is this, and I I don't know if I'm right, but this is my conclusion anyway. I, I believe we don't have the rest of the story because this was meant to teach us how to respond. It's really not about what Philemon did. It certainly was important to them at that time. But, but I really think it's about us in the church. How we're to respond to one another. Because now we've got a new brother in Christ, and what's supposed to happen? And I think this little letter was given to us not to see how they responded, but see how we would respond. So let me make it real personal. Let's change the culture. None of us have runaway slaves here, but you've been hurt by a friend. You've been ditched by a boyfriend or girlfriend. You've been rejected by a spouse. You've been maligned by a coworker. You, you had a roommate or a close friend who doesn't text anymore. They go out and you never hear about it. You used to go out with them all the time. You're deeply wounded. Maybe it was a, a son-in-law or daughter-in-law who stole your, your daughter or your son and you never hear from any of them again. You've got grandkids you've never laid eyes on. You've got somebody you roomed with your first year of college who won't even talk to your second year at the university. You, 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 you've been hurt deeply. How should a Christ follower respond? How are we to live out the gospel when you've done nothing wrong, when you've been wrong, when your brother or sister comes to you to be restored, that's what happened here. He comes to be restored. How are we supposed to respond? What are we supposed to do? How does a Christ follower have a gospel-centered response to a situation like this? Seek revenge, make people grovel at our feet, make them pay the price for their sin. You've been wounded, hurt, messed over, get even. What do you do? Forgive even if they don't apologize? Really? What do you do? Well, I want us to understand forgiveness this morning, because I really think this is a book about redemption and forgiveness. Redemption, Paul offers to pay a price for something he hadn't done. Jesus paid a price for something he didn't do. He paid the price for your sin and for my sin. This is a story about redemption. It's the offer of redemption. We, we, we see that Paul offers, Jesus didn't just offer, Jesus paid the price. He paid the price for our redemption. We were in slavery as well, and he paid the price for redemption of our sin and so we can be set free from slavery. And then it's a book about forgiveness. It's about forgiveness. And as I have studied forgiveness, I would say if you've been at TBC for any length of time, one of the things that Gary DeSalvo talks about over and over and over is forgiveness. Forgiveness, first of all, on the vertical, the vertical between us and God. And once we've been forgiven, it must take place in the horizontal with others. And so I just want to take the few minutes we have and talk about the topic of forgiveness, because redemption and forgiveness are two themes of this book. Let's begin by talking about unforgiveness. If you decide to live a life of unforgiveness towards someone who has hurt you, you, you will incur two things. First of all, you will live in bondage. You will live in emotional bondage, spiritual bondage, and maybe even physical bondage. Sometimes our body keeps score when we begin to live this way. But for certain, you will live in spiritual and emotional bondage. If someone has harmed you in some way, and you choose to live a life of unforgiveness, you will end up in a prison cell. It's a prison cell of bondage. It's a bondage. It's a prison cell of unforgiveness. You will choose to either be a prisoner of your past or a product of your past. You will choose to walk in unforgiveness or you will choose to stay in this prison cell. And some of you right now are in a prison cell. Somebody has hurt you, somebody has maimed you, somebody has turned their back on you, somebody has done something towards you, and you refuse to forgive. You are like a pit bull on a bone. I mean, you are not going to give it up. And the result of that is you end up living your life in bitterness. In fact, when we walk in unforgiveness, it's really like drinking poison and hoping the other person's going to die. I mean, that, 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 that's what unforgiveness is. You drink the poison and you think somebody else is going to die. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. One thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining to what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So if we as a church... If we as a church, if we as individuals recognize, yes, I've been hurt, yes, I've been abused, yes, I've experienced these things, but the reality of it is I've got to put behind me, I've got to keep my eyes on Jesus and press ahead, that's how you will deal with forgiveness and not live in bondage. I meet a lot of people in prison cells. And they're not behind the walls of the places in Gatesville, but they're in the prison cell of unforgiveness. And I pray that you'll get out of that prison cell. Mark Batterson in The Wild Goose Chase wrote this, so many people are prisoners to two or three experiences in their past, or maybe it's many more, I would add. A tiny seed of bitterness turns into a forest of unforgiveness, and what so many people fail to realize is that their unforgiveness doesn't hurt the person who hurt them. It simply compounds the pain in your own heart. We think our unforgiveness will somehow cage the person who hurts us, but it only cages us. When you walk in unforgiveness, you place yourself in a prison cell. And some of you have been hurt deeply. I know it. Many of you have picked up Bev's book and read it, Return for Joy. And she talks about being in this prison cell, but she's got a chapter I reread this morning, actually, on forgiveness, chapter 8, and it has to do with, with making sure that you don't live in unforgiveness, but you walk in forgiveness and worship. Secondly, if you decide to live in unforgiveness, not only will you be embodied, but you'll become bitter. You'll become bitter. You and I have all seen bitter old people, haven't you? Bitter old people. I mean, their faces look like they could be the frontest piece for the book of Lamentations. I mean, I mean, they just look bitter. Sarcasm is the way they speak to people. Anger is the way they deal with life. They become bitter. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You see, if you let that root grow deeper and deeper and deeper, it's harder to yank it out. I told you that uh, a while back I was trying to pull out a plant that had grown too big and the roots had gone down. And uh, Bev came by and said, if you'd done that when that plant was smaller, it would be a lot easier. Yeah, it would have been. Same thing with bitterness. You let that root sink down deep and it becomes more and more difficult to yank out. You got a root of bitterness in your heart? Bitter towards some person? Towards a church? Towards leaders, spiritual leaders? Towards in-laws, outlaws? Someone who's abused you? Someone who's abandoned you? The scriptures say if you don't deal with it, you will have a root of bitterness that goes so deep into your heart that you'll forget the grace of God. You'll fall short of understanding the grace of God. And so if you decide to live in unforgiveness, you end up living your life in bondage, And in bitterness. Here's a bitter ad for you. Craigslist. Wedding dress, size 8, worn once by mistake. Wow. That speaks of pain. That speaks of bitterness. What about you? Latching on to something you can't let go, I'm here today to invite you to let it go. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. You are forgiven everything. And so we have to forgive everyone. John MacArthur said, an unforgiving Christian is a contradiction in terms. Unforgiving and Christian don't go together. And I'll talk about that in a second. So, Pastor Gary, what, what, what does forgiveness look like? When I look at the New Testament, forgiveness involves at least four things. If you look at the particular word, aphemi, that's used over and over in the Greek text, forgiveness involves four things. First of all, it involves canceling a debt, It involves canceling a debt. The the, the word for forgiveness, the word afami, and I'll just read to you, forgiveness means to release or set free. It's used of the cancellation of a debt, the release from a legal obligation. Forgiveness is a conscious decision on the part of the offended party to release the offender from the penalty and guilt of the offense. It means to, to cancel a debt. That's what it means. And that's a difficult thing to do when somebody has wounded you, when somebody has hurt you, when somebody has maimed you. But until we cancel that debt, we'll never have the freedom, we'll never be out of bondage, and we may have a root of bitterness. What Paul offered to do for Onesimus was to pay off his debt. What Jesus did for you was to pay off your debt. Peter came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, and you're going to remember the story because Peter goes to, to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone up to how many times? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, Peter, I tell you, you should forgive How many? 70 times. And Peter, you forgive 490 times and you can stop. not what he's saying. Peter, you forgive and you forgive and you forgive and you forgive because a forgiven person forgives. That's what he does. That's what she does. In fact, Peter, let me tell you a story, Peter. There was a slave who owed his master this insurmountable debt. And he couldn't repay him, and the master brought the, prison, the, the slave in, and he said, I'm going to cash you into the debtor's prison, and, and, and the slave begged him. He said, don't do it, master. I'll be separated from my family. And so the master did an unbelievable thing. He forgave him his entire debt. If you looked at that debt to what it equals today, it was over $14 million. Just forgave it. We need that master to oversee the indebtedness of America right now, which is $14 trillion. But that slave who'd been forgiven this great debt then turns to a fellow slave who owes him 30 days wages. And in the midst of that, he turns to him and says, he says, let me work it off. Let me pay for it. And he says, no. And he casts him in a debtor's prison. He had been forgiven this great debt, then turned and found a guy with a little debt and wouldn't forgive him. And the point that Jesus makes in the parable is that man doesn't understand true forgiveness. Because when you understand how much you've been forgiven, the debt of sin, you will forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. It doesn't stop, because of how much we've been forgiven. A forgiven person forgives. Secondly, it's not only canceling a debt, it's releasing resentment. In Genesis, the last 20 verses of the 20 chapters of Genesis, the story of a guy named Joseph. Joseph is beloved by his dad. He's favored by his dad. It's a great example of what parents should not do. But he's favored by his dad over his other brothers. And so the brothers become mad at Joseph. They're angry at Joseph. They can't stand Joseph. They're jealous of Joseph. And so they decide to sell Joseph into slavery. They're going to kill him, actually. But an Egyptian caravan comes by. And so they sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph becomes a slave of Pharaoh. But he rises up through being able to interpret dreams, interpretation given to him by God's grace. And Joseph rises up to become prime minister. One of the dreams is about famine that's coming. And so Joseph warns Pharaoh, they save up years of food. And so all the other nations have to come to Pharaoh and to Egypt to get food. One day, Joseph's brothers who sold them into slavery show up and they're starving. They want food. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph. He looks like an Egyptian, not a Hebrew. Eventually, Joseph has a series of events that takes place. Eventually, Joseph's brothers, his father and his youngest brother, Benjamin, all come back to Egypt and Joseph treats them like royalty the Pharaoh hears what's happening and he he allows him to, or Potiphar hears what's happening. He he gives him great gifts. He gives him great honor. He he gives him a great place to to live and he gives him food and everything else. And Joseph is royalty. He treats his family like royalty, but then daddy dies. And when daddy dies, the brothers get afraid. Maybe Joseph did this just because of daddy. And now Joseph's going to get even with us. He's going to extract some revenge from us. And can we really trust Joseph? And Joseph's heart is broken. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, we read these words. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving the lives of many. He said, what you did was wrong. There's no question about it. You meant to harm me. You hurt me deeply. You sold me into slavery. You wanted me dead. He's not saying this is okay. He's not excusing their sin. You excuse, you know, 11-year-old boys that burp at the table at lunchtime like our grandkids did yesterday. You do that. You excuse people whose cell phones rang in church one time. (laughs) Joseph in excuse their sin, he's not making lies. He said, you intended to harm me. But God can take that and bring good out of it. And he's saving lives because of it. So you were hurt. Joseph released that resentment. What about you? I'm convinced one of the most difficult places to do it is in the home. Our husband hurts us, our wife hurts us, our kids hurt us, our in-laws hurt us, daughter in law son-in-law, whoever it might be, and it's hard not to become bitter. We want to get even. This lady writes, uh, one of my customers is checking out. I ask her the question we always do, cash, check, or charge? Uh, As I was folding the items that she was about to purchase, she was fumbling for a wallet when I noticed a remote control for a television in her purse. I thought that was odd, so I asked her, do you always carry your TV remote? Uh, No, she said, but my husband refused to come shopping with me. I figured this was the best way to get even with him. (laughs) Ladies, I am not encouraging that at all. I actually wish Bev would have taken her remote away from me last night. Uh, I was watching a football game, but you're holding some resentment. I, I invite you to see it the way Joseph saw it. You meant it for harm. He's not, he's not saying it was okay. But God brings good from it. God brings good from it. You seek reconciliation. Uh, one of the, for, when we look at forgiveness in the Scriptures, reconciliation is a part of it. We can't always bring it about, but we're to seek it. In fact, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother or sister has something against you, it doesn't say you've done something wrong. It says they have something against you. What are you to do? You put down your sacrifice. That is, you don't continue to worship. You go and seek to be reconciled. I, I like what one author writes about reconciliation. He says, forgiveness paves the way for reconciliation, but the two are not the same. Forgiveness and reconciliation are different. Forgiveness is radical surgery. Reconciliation is healing after the surgery. Forgiveness is canceling the debt. Reconciliation puts debt-free lives back together. Forgiveness is a decision to release. All these definitions I just gave you, reconciliation is an effort to rejoin. Our attitude towards reconciliation may reveal the sincerity of our forgiveness. If we say an absolute no to the possibility of reconciliation or resuming the relationship, we may be harboring resentment that the Holy Spirit wants to purge. When we forgive another person, we're entrusting that relationship to God. We must also be willing to consider His plans for the future that relationship. There are situations in which forgiveness will be naturally followed by steady progress towards reconciliation. In other relationships, we can truly forgive, and yet for some reason, reconciliation will be impossible or even unlikely. You've been abused. You don't walk back into the life of an abuser. But but what you do is you you forgive, and with that reconciliation doesn't take place, or if you try, you still have boundaries. You still have boundaries. He's not saying that. But you seek reconciliation. The final point is that forgiveness involves canceling a debt, releasing resentment, seeking reconciliation, remembering to forget. That's what God does for us. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. We don't bury the hatchet and keep the map. We, We don't get historical all the time. We don't say, yes, I forgive you, and then we bring it back up week after week, month after month, year after year. I've said many times more marriages break up because people get his, historical rather than hysterical. Get historical. and never give it up. C.S. Lewis said this, you will never forgive anyone more than God's forgiven you. Not going to happen. Because he's forgiven you of everything. So, worship team, would you guys join me? what do we do with this? For some of you, you need to extend forgiveness to people you've hurt. You've hurt other people. You've hurt kids. You've hurt a spouse, maybe a former spouse, maybe a current spouse. You need to extend forgiveness to those that you hurt. You need to send a text message, an email, make a phone call or show up at somebody's doorstep and and, and extend forgiveness to somebody you've hurt. You've hurt them deeply it's, it's not too hard to say, I'm sorry. In fact, I want you to practice that with me. I want you to say the words, I'm sorry. Would you do that with me? I'm sorry. Let's try it one more time. I'm sorry. Now, was that so hard? Was that so hard? Do you remember the guy who said, I, 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 I married Mrs. Wright. I just didn't know her first name was always. For some of us, we need to seek forgiveness because we've hurt other people deeply. We've walked out on people. We've abandoned people. We've abused people. We've become angry with people. We've introduced them to bad things in the past. And we've never gone back and said, I'm sorry. It's a, you, you can call that person and say, Hey, I'm a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. New things have come. I want you to know, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I abandoned you and the kids when I shouldn't have done that. I, I fired you or I had you fired. I I don't know what it is. Secondly, so for some of us, we need to offer forgiveness to those we've hurt. For some of us, we need to extend forgiveness to someone who's hurt us. Philemon was hurt by Onesimus. Ran away from him. Wasn't right. And Paul says, I want you to extend forgiveness and treat him like you're treating me. And for some of us, we need to extend forgiveness. Some of you have been hurt deeply. I know it. You've been abused. You've been abandoned. You've been the victim of anger. You've been the victim of... A lot of things. But if you choose not to extend forgiveness, you end up in bondage and in bitterness. And then all of us need to walk in forgiveness. We need to remember that this isn't just, I forgive you, and then we keep a mat on. But we need to say, I forgive you. And we walk in that forgiveness all the days of our life. You may have meant it for evil, but God can bring good out of it. So here's what I'm going to do. The worship team is going to sing a song. We're going to keep our heads bowed for a few minutes as they sing. They're going to remind us of God's amazing grace. I'm going to be on my knees down here. Hey, you've got somebody you need to forgive. You've got somebody you need to offer forgiveness to. This is a good time to pull up the weed. This is a good time to say, hey, I'm done with this. I've carried this burden way too long and way too far. And so I'm going to give it up. You, you got that person's face right in front of you right now. Or maybe it's people, multiple people. I'm inviting you to come down and hang your knees with me. And say, Lord, I I forgive whoever it is. Our Lord, please forgive me for carrying this for way too long. At the very end, we're going to join them. I'll stand you up and we'll join them and sing about God's amazing grace. Now would you bow your heads up and allow God to do a work. Father, would you do a work in the heart to these, my friends in my heart, in any one of our hearts that need to give forgiveness, extend forgiveness, and walk in forgiveness. If that's you, join me now.
1: I've been set free, I've been set free. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that sings
0: freed from bondage. We walk with Him today and
1: forevermore in His name. Amen. Bless you.